0: Well, good morning and welcome to Faith Covenant Church. I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here. And today, like we said earlier, is the first Sunday of the Advent season. Now, Advent, it is a season of expectancy where we prime our hearts to celebrate the coming of Christ on Christmas. And to help us do that during this season, we are beginning a brand new series called The Miracles of Christmas. Central to our celebration of Christmas is the unfathomable reality that God physically steps into the world as the man Jesus. And we're going to spend some time talking about how amazing that truly is. But when we really stop to think about the Christmas story, what we end up seeing is that it's not just one miraculous event, but instead it's the culmination of so many miraculous and mysterious workings of God So in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of those miraculous and mysterious things that are part of the Christmas story so that we can get a better understanding of the lengths that our God has gone through to redeem his people. Our hope is that by looking at these different miracles of Christmas, we're going to be able to celebrate the birth of Christ even more. But before we get started today with our first miracle of Christmas, let's spend some time praying. God, we are thankful for the baptisms today. What an incredible thing to celebrate the new life that you've given. Pray for those who have been baptized that you continue to lead them. I pray for those of us who have witnessed it, that it may stir up in our hearts the reality that we died with you and rose again into new life. Help us desire to live into that new life, Lord. Pray during the series that you help us come face-to-face with how truly miraculous Christmas is and how we see in it your inexpressible love to the world. Use your words today to shape our hearts. We ask this in your name, amen. So here's an important principle that matters for pretty much all of life. Timing matters. My first time hosting Christmas dinner at our house, I learned this lesson firsthand. We had prepared this amazing Christmas feast We had all these delicious side dishes, like, I don't know, roasted Brussels sprouts and fresh baked rolls and cheesy potatoes and green beans, almondine, all the goodies. But our main dish was a delicious prime rib roast. And here's what happened. We finished making all the sides. They were hot. They were ready to go. The designated time for dinner had arrived we all were sitting around the table waiting to get started, like smelling the side dishes, like salivating. People were starting to really get excited about eating. But you know what didn't finish on time? Our prime rib. We just were like sitting around, bunch of side dishes, table set, people drooling, getting a little hangry, and the roast wasn't even close to being ready. We ended up like, getting the timing off by seriously like 35 minutes. And by the end of dinner, everyone was thinking, yeah, dinner would have been great if all the food was finished on time. Timing matters. This is true for pretty much any part of life. You know, there's nothing like showing up to a meeting when it's three quarters of the way finished. Why? Timing matters. And there's nothing like getting charged late fees on your bill. Timing matters. But seriously, timing is just so important. One of the things that I talk to couples in premarital counseling about is thinking about timing when bringing up hard topics. Like, when is the best time to bring up a difficult conversation so that it will go well? Because when your spouse has just gotten home from a long day at work, and they're totally exhausted, and they're stressed, and there's still 30 things to finish on the to-do list— it's probably not the best time to bring up how you're dissatisfied with your sex life. It's just not going to go very well because timing matters. Here is the thing that has to do with the miraculous, the miracles of Christmas. God knows that timing matters. And so he picked a time for Jesus to come that he knew was perfect. A time he had been preparing humanity for. A time that would help us Best see what God is truly like. Check out what Paul says about this in the book of Galatians. He says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is amazing. God decided upon a specific time, a time that he had chosen, a time that he had specially crafted for Jesus to come. I love how the ESV translates this verse. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Here's what I want us to see today. One of the miracles of the Christmas story is the miracle of the moment, that God chose just the right time for Jesus to come, and that he was working in all of history to prepare us for that moment so that we would better understand who God is. So if you've got your Bibles with you today or your Bible app, you can go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23. We're going to spend some time asking the question of what does it mean that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son? i got to give you a warning in advance. Uh, This is a little bit of a theologically heavy sermon. Um, So if you like taking notes, that might help. At the end, it's all going to come together, and I hope we see why it matters. Um, But I feel like if you're not warned for that statement, you might be like, "Whoa, my gosh, what did I get into today? Uh, Okay, Galatians. Our understanding of the book of Galatians, probably more than any other of Paul's writings, is dependent upon us understanding the situation that Paul was writing into. What we call the book of Galatians was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to churches in the region of Galatia and he wrote this letter to address a very specific problem that was happening in these churches. Basically, what was going on is that you had all of these non-Jewish believers who had placed their faith in Jesus and had become a part of this brand new early church. But then, you had these Jewish teachers who also kind of followed Jesus who showed up in Galatia and were teaching that Faith in Jesus is really important, but it's only the starting point to being a part of the people of God. Basically, they were saying that to truly be a part of the people of God, you needed to adopt certain ways of life that would identify you with God's original chosen people, the Jews. This would be things like circumcision for the males, observance of certain holy days, festivals, various dietary restrictions. In short, they were teaching Faith in Jesus, it's the first step. Observance of these key cultural and religious markers, they're what finishes the process and makes you truly a part of God's people. Now, this isn't really a a theological question that we consider very often. Most of us don't wake up in the morning and think to ourselves, hmm, I wonder how much of the Old Testament law I need to adopt to truly be a part of God's people. I mean, can I have bacon? Is that okay? What about shrimp? You know, we're not, we're not asking those questions in 2023. But this question, the question of the Jewish law, it was one of the main contentious points that was raging through the early church. So Paul heard that these things were being taught to the Galatian churches, And that some of these new believers were being led astray, like they were either abandoning their faith because of it, or they were saying, okay, whatever you say, we'll do it, which just think about what that means for a second. So, Paul, no doubt outraged, he writes this short little letter to help the church understand that these Jewish teachers were not correct in telling the Gentile, in what they were telling the Gentile Christians in Galatia. So, Paul's basic argument, if we were to distill all of the book of Galatians, it looks a little bit like this. And this is really important for understanding the rest of the passage today. His argument is that both acceptance from God and the continuance of a relationship with him are, one, given by God's grace and based solely on faith in Jesus. Two, are for all people of all cultures, ethnicities, and genders. And three, Do not require the adoption of cultural markers or religious practices that that had historically been practiced by the people of God. This is what Paul is arguing. And essentially, in the whole book of Galatians, he's making argument after argument after argument to prove this thesis. And that's what we see in our passage, chapter 3, starting in verse 23, is Paul is giving one of his arguments about why this is true. And this is what Paul says. He says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees, until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. Yeah, we got to break this apart. It is not a super simple, straightforward passage. So let's just start at verse 23. Paul says, Before the coming of this faith, he's talking about faith in Jesus, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. When we read this, it's easy to think about like being in jail or prison and being locked up in custody and there being a guard sitting out front. But that's actually not what Paul's getting at here. You see, in Paul's time, there was this practice where sons of wealthy estate owners who would end up becoming the primary inheritors of the family estate they were placed under a guardianship until they matured enough to be given real responsibility in that estate. And the guardian, they were responsible to take care of and make decisions for this male heir until the point in time that the father had decided upon where that heir was officially granted rights and responsibilities of a son. And these guardians They would help sons get great educations. They would help make sure they stayed out of trouble. They would make sure that they were healthy and wise and intelligent. And Paul's saying that for the Jews, the law, that is the law given by Moses, that was responsible for giving them their religious and cultural markers, it was meant to be their guardian. It made decisions for them. It watched over them. It was meant to protect and grow them in wisdom and maturity. And the law... It was guardian until Christ came, but now through faith in Christ, they were freed from this guardianship and granted their full rights as children of God. That's the first part of Paul's argument. So he makes that point, and then he goes on to say this. He says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, this is where Paul starts to expand his argument. At first, he's just talking about um, people who shared his Jewish heritage. He said, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. He's talking about his fellow Jews. But now, starting in verse 26, he's expanding his argument to those who were not just Jews, but also Gentiles. He's saying that those who are not under the guardianship of the law, they too can receive full rights as sons of God. In Christ Jesus, we can all be children of God. Paul's making this abundantly clear. The ethnicity, it's not a determining factor. Socioeconomic status, it's not a determining factor. Cultural practice, not a determining factor. Gender, not a determining factor. If you have faith in Christ, it doesn't matter whether you are under the guardianship of the law or not, you can receive full rights as sons of God. That's Paul's argument here. Now, remember, Paul's arguing against teachers who are trying to get non-Jewish followers of Jesus to essentially be more Jewish by following certain parts of the Old Testament law. So, they wouldn't have liked this argument very much. In fact, it would have seemed offensive to them. And to get that, I want us to just try and put ourselves in the shoes of those who are trying to get Gentile believers to act more Jewish. You know, for centuries, the Jews had been the officially chosen people of God. God had uniquely called and chosen them to be his people. And part of that was that he gave them this law that differentiated them from pretty much anyone else on the planet. Not to be crass here, but this is a major part of why circumcision was such a big deal in the New Testament. We don't think much about this in in the U.S. Circumcision, it's a pretty widely practiced procedure. But in the ancient world, it was not widely practiced. You see, in history, there are all of these things that somehow were just common across different people groups in different places. Like, you could show up in 0 AD and look at people in Israel, look at people in the British Isles, and look at people in Machu Picchu, folks who would have never, ever met each other or had cross-pollination. And we would see all sorts of practices that all of them did, even though they had never come into contact with each other. Things like weaving. At this point in history, Most people had figured out how to make yarn out of animal fur and weave it into textiles that you would change into clothes. They had just all pretty much figured that out. Or take, for example, writing. It didn't matter where you were in the world, people were figuring out how to write and paint and cook and farm and form tools out of metal. There are just practices that humans intuitively figured out. But you know what's a practice that is not naturally intuitive to humans? circumcision. And I don't, I don't think I really need to go into why it wasn't intuitively practiced, but what that meant for the Jews is that you had this practice that God had told them to do that no one else did. And because of that, it became this extremely unique identity marker. Not only were they the only ones that did it, but they did it because God told them to. They felt like circumcision, it's a part of what identifies us as God's people. And by the time of Jesus, this was culturally ingrained. God's people get circumcised. And along with circumcision, there were several other very unique practices that only Jews did. Things like the religious festivals, the dietary restrictions, their holy days— These were all practices that God had told them to do that only they did and they felt like were a part of what made them the people of God. They had these practices that were given to them in Old Testament law that were a part of who they were. So it makes sense that anyone reading this letter from Paul who may have had Jewish heritage would have been asking, yeah, Paul, but what about the Old Testament law? God gave it to us. It makes us who we are. It identifies us as God's people. Shouldn't anyone who's coming into the people of God through Jesus be required to take on these specific identity markers? That makes sense, doesn't it? We can sympathize with their thoughts. This is why Paul takes some extra time here to clarify his remarks about the guardianship of the law. This is what he wrote. He said, this is chapter 4, verse 1, What I'm saying is, is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. We're going to stop there. There are a couple of things here that don't bridge the cultural divide that well so let's pick them apart. First, Paul mentions, as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Now, we often read this with our specific understanding of slavery. Um, It's important to note the type of slavery that Paul was talking about here is not the same as the system of chattel slavery that horrifically existed in the U.S. prior to the Civil War. This doesn't mean that the practice of slavery in the ancient world was justified or that Paul was arguing for slavery, but it's important to understand their system of slavery because it's actually hard to understand this analogy otherwise. The first thing to recognize is that slavery was more of indentured servitude. So if you found yourself in debt, like up to your eyeballs, no hope of getting out, there was no bankruptcy back then, but what you could do is you could sell yourself and your family to someone, either the person that you owed or someone who was willing to take on your debt. The idea being that after an agreed upon time, you would be released from your servitude debt-free. But what often happened in Jesus' world is that slaves would choose to stay slaves after their time of service ended. Why? Well, because as a slave, they were a part of a household with housing and food, which in a world that did not have a middle class, the idea was that people who were becoming a slaves were often without a lot of other options. Slavery often became the most stable and secure way to provide for yourself and your family. Now, this is a very truncated view. There's a lot of other stuff going on with their system of slavery, a lot of it being really unjust. But the idea here is that a slave would become a part of the master's household, but not as someone who had ownership or power, but rather as someone who was told what to do. So Paul's saying, when an heir is a child, they're really like a slave. They're not much different, meaning they're a part of the household, but they don't have any real power over the direction or choices that are made for them. Now, the difference between an heir and a slave is the intended future. An heir was essentially being groomed to take over the family estate, meaning that they were placed under guardians and trustees. This is what we talked about earlier. They were placed under the authority of someone else, be it a teacher, a mentor, a nanny, who was responsible to help bring them up and ensure their safety and development so that when the time that the father had decided upon, this heir would be ready to take over the family estate. Now, Paul's using this analogy to make a, a point, and he ties it all together and he says, So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul's argument is this. He's saying to his fellow Jews that they should think of their time before Jesus as a time where they were simply underage, not quite ready to experience the fullness of their inheritance as children of God. The implication here that Paul made clear earlier is that the law was meant to be their guardian watching over and preparing them for the time that the Father had appointed. But what's important to note here, actually, is that Paul subverts his own analogy. Paul's like the best example of like doing a bad job of mixing analogies. When you read Paul, you're like, wait a second, is that a new analogy? Is it the old one? So here he's actually subverting his analogy and casting this idea in a negative light. He's basically saying the problem was that instead of just being under a guardianship, they ended up being in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. All right, what the heck does that mean? (laughs) A lot of ink has been spilled over what exactly Paul meant when he said the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Uh, The word we translate as elemental spiritual forces of the world, and I got a great little slide, bling, right there. (laughs) The word we translate as elemental spiritual forces is actually one word, stoichion. And elsewhere in the Greek-speaking world, it was meant to mean rudimentary principles. So things like learning your basic math concepts or learning your ABCs. These were stoikion. They were rudimentary principles. And Paul's idea here is that you were held into slavery by these rudimentary religious forces, these rudimentary religious principles. Uh, any band dorks out there? Yeah, we got a couple. We got a couple. I was in band. You would have never guessed, right? Uh, (laughs) I was in band all through middle school and high school. I played percussion. And for percussionists, especially those that wanted to play the drum set, rudiments were a big deal. There are all of these practices and exercises that we call rudiments that teach you proper sticking and timing. And here's the deal with rudiments. A lot of folks who want to play the drum set, they hate practicing rudiments. They're dry They're kind of boring. You're like, not unlike this sermon, James. But but the people who spent time really learning the rudiments were the ones who typically became the most skilled and capable drummers. Because that is what rudimentary principles are supposed to do. They're supposed to build a foundation that prepares you to go on to experience something bigger. Paul's point is this. That instead of these rudimentary principles, these stoikion being religious principles that help prepare God's people to move into the inheritance they were meant for, instead of that, they became elementary religious principles that enslaved the people. They took these principles and devoted themselves to them in a way that actually missed God's purpose and became slaves to it. Let me try and sum up Paul's point. He's saying, "Hey, the Old Testament law, it wasn't bad. In fact, it was meant to serve an amazing purpose. It was meant to be the guardian of God's people while they waited for the inheritance that was meant for them. And Here's where Paul brings it all together. He says, but when the set time, you remember back to that conversation he just had, about the guardians and the father having a set time to be released. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is huge. Paul saying, the law was meant to be your guardian, but you turned it into a slave master. But God had a plan. And had decided upon just the right time. A time that would be exactly what he wanted it to be. A time he decided was right. And he sent Jesus, born of a woman, to take those who had become enslaved to the law and redeem them and adopt them into the role that they were meant to have. Jesus releases them from their guardianship and makes them sons of God so they can step into their true inheritance. That's how Paul says it. He says, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Paul's telling these Jewish teachers that a Jewish identity as defined by Old Testament law, is not what makes people children of God. Everyone can be a child of God, but it is through faith in Jesus. Now, it would be extremely natural for you to be sitting here thinking, so what? (laughs) Why does this matter? Especially on the first Sunday Advent. Aren't we supposed to be talking about like cute kids and pregnant ladies and mangers and stuff like that? Well, we tend to not grapple with this question of Jewishness the way the early church did. But this argument is actually one of the most significant and important theological discussions in the entire New Testament. Because it presents us with these truths. And coincidentally, some of them are truths that relate to the miracle of the moment. The first of those truths is this. Everything leading up to the birth of Christ matters. It's not like the only moment in history that matters is the coming of Jesus and everything that happened before them now is meaningless. No, the fact that when Paul says, when the fullness of time came, this indicates that the time prior to Jesus, this time when the people of God were under the guardian of the law, it was purposeful. It was a time that was leading up to and preparing us for Jesus. This is a part of the miracle of the moment. It's not just that at one moment God came to earth. It's that for all of history, for the entire story that we have inherited that is the the Old Testament, God had been preparing the world for Jesus' coming. There's a million ways that we see this happening and there's probably more ways than we could ever comprehend on this side of the veil but just a couple things to think about first god was preparing the world for jesus by using the story of the jews and their experience with the law to show how deeply ingrained sin and brokenness truly are it is everywhere in the old testament just think about exodus in Exodus 20, it takes like one page to see the incredible brokenness of, the, of, of humanity. You've got Moses. He's up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. It's going well. God's like, here's what to do. Moses comes down the mountain. He's like, hey, brothers and sisters, I got this law from God. And you know how they respond? They say, everything the Lord has said we will do. That's an exact quote from the people. But then Moses goes back up on the mountain to get some more laws from God. And while he's away, the Israelites get a little freaked out. So what do they do? They build an idol in the shape of a calf. Now, didn't they just say, we'll do whatever you say, God? And didn't God say in the Ten Commandments, don't make any idols? The story shows us how broken we are. The entire story of the Israelites is one where we see how humanity inherently struggles to do what God asks. We see it on a personal level with how broken all of the Old Testament heroes are. We see it on a corporate level when the entire story of Israel is one where they keep abandoning God and having to get called back to him. We are broken. Now, we also see though in this story of the Jews and their experience with the law, how desperately we are in need of saving. One of the ways that humans try and deal with our brokenness is by creating rules. Anyone who has kids recognizes this. Your kids, from the second they come out of their mom, uh, you're like, oh man, sin is real. Uh, <laughs> and how do we often deal with it? Rules. The problem with rules is that We just stink at following them. Can I get an amen on that one? We are terrible at following rules. But even bigger than that, rules cannot fix the brokenness that is in our hearts. We need to have our hearts fixed. There is something wrong with us that rules cannot fix. We love the wrong things too much, we love the right things too little. Following rules cannot change that. We need something that will actually change our hearts, work in us at a heart deep level. That's why the prophet speaking for God told the Israelites things like, this is from Ezekiel 36, he says, God telling the Israelites, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone." And give you a heart of flesh. This is actually the third thing that God was doing while the Jews were under the guardianship of the law. He was helping set up all of these expectations and prophecies that would help us see that Jesus is the answer to the world's problems. Through the law, through the prophets, through the story of Israel, God had been laying this foundation so that when Jesus actually came, people would be able to see, yes, this is the Son of God, Savior of the world. Part of the miracle of the moment was that God was at work in the ages running up to the birth of Christ to prepare the world to receive Jesus. It's amazing. But one other thing that Paul's teaching in Galatians matters, one other reason it matters for us, and that is that when the right time came, God wanted to make sure that everyone would see that his love and salvation is available to all. There is something about the moment that God chose for Jesus to come into the world that would help people see that his salvation is for Jew and for Gentile, for slave and for free, for rich and for poor, for man and for woman. You see, when Jesus was born the tensions between Jew and Gentile, they were ridiculously high. Not only that, but the tensions between Jews and Jews were also incredibly high. Because what you had was the few hundred years leading up to the birth of Christ, they were terrible for the Jews. They were in exile, and then they came out of exile, and then they were under Roman occupation. And one of the issues that happens to people when they are in exile is that their cultural and religious strength often becomes diluted from living in the middle of pagan cultures. And so, what ended up happening for the Jews was you had the Hebraic Jews who, excuse me, lived in Israel and spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, and then you had these Greek Jews who lived throughout the Roman Empire, primarily spoke Greek and often looked more Greek than they did Jewish. And so, you had this movement, this religious movement in Israel that thought, if only the Jews could reclaim their cultural and religious purity then God would restore them and end their oppression. Basically, many Jews thought that the answer to their problems was to reclaim more purity, to become more Jewish. And the Greek-speaking Jews and the Gentiles stood in their way of this mission. Basically, many Jews thought the answer to the problems they were having was to reclaim more cultural purity, more Jewishness. It was tension between Jews and Jews, It was tension between Jews and Gentiles. This is the moment when tensions were so high that Jesus was born. And in it, he ends up showing that God's salvation, it's not just for Jews. It's actually for every people group in the world. Paul said it like this. So in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The moment God chose to come to earth helps us see more clearly the heart of God, which is this, that he loves all people And that he came to save people regardless of race, class, ethnicity, culture, gender, all are able to find a place as the people of God, not by becoming Jewish, but by having faith in Jesus. This moment of Jesus coming helps us see clearly that God's love is not just for Jews, it's not just for Greeks not just for romans not just for americans not just for people of european descent or african descent or asian descent or middle eastern descent but instead jesus came so that everyone regardless of race gender or ethnicity could be could become a child of god through faith the miracle of the moment helps us see how god came for all people now we got to land this plane with Christmas, it is easy to get wrapped up in this incomprehensibly amazing moment where God comes to earth. It's easy to get lost in that. And if you're not getting lost in that, you've got to think a little bit more about it because it is mind-blowing. But in that, we can miss this huge point that God had been preparing the world for the moment of Jesus coming. And the story of the Jews and their experiences with God and their experiences with the law, and the way that they fell short, the way they turned the law into something it was never meant to be, in all of this, God was preparing the world for his miraculous coming. He was showing how deep our sinfulness is and how it ruins everything. He was showing us our immense need for a Savior. He was showing us that rules aren't enough. And by doing so, he was priming the pump for all people to receive Jesus. This is why Paul says that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful for your coming. Father God, we are immensely grateful for the way that you prepared the world for your coming the way that you set in motion so many things to make it so that we could see you in Jesus. Lord, we pray that as we go from here, we may be a people who is overcome by the lengths you went to to save us, and that we may be influenced to also go through great lengths to help those around us see you. Lord, we pray this all in your name. Amen.